Although the characters we discuss are fictional, the challenges people face every day are not. The information we provide in this podcast is for entertainment and informational purposes only and should not be used in place of advice from a mental health or medical professional. If you are struggling with mental health issues, please seek professional help. Thanks for listening and welcome to the Jedi Council Podcast, where we explore mental health in your favorite fictional characters. Hey folks, welcome back to the next episode of the Jedi Council Podcast. This is your counting down the days until graduation graduate student co-host Brandon Saxton. And your associate professor co-host Katie Gordon. How are you doing today, Katie? I'm doing great. I am super excited about today's guest. Dr. Sanjay Srivastava is here today. Yeah, I'm thrilled about it. And as I was just saying before we hit the record button, I'm just going to repeat it because it's that good of content, <laughs> is this is a, one of these really fun um, episodes that we do where we have someone on the show who has their own podcast that I've listened to quite a bit of. So I, I get like this weird kind of sensation where I feel like I'm listening to the podcast. So if you hear any awkward silences from me, that's what's happening okay. is I'm thinking I'm listening to a different I'll show. I'll elbow you or something Please to do. get you yes. guys on track. Okay, how are you doing today, Sanjay? <laughs> I'm I'm doing really good, and uh, the same goes the other way. I feel like I should maybe be at the gym. Um, <laughs> I'm used to listening to you guys on the treadmill, you know, just to, it, it feels a little unusual to be, like, sitting at my desk right now. <laughs> well, great. We're so happy to have you today. I'm going to introduce you a little bit for our listeners. Sanjay is a professor of psychology who conducts scientific research on personality and social dynamics. He is the writer of an excellent blog called The Hardest Science, and a co-host of the science podcast, The Black Goat, along with Dr. Samin Vizier and Dr. Alexa Tullet. Thank you so much, Sanjay. Should we launch into our questions? Yeah, let's do it. Because we've got a lot. Absolutely. <laughs> so um, before we kind of dig into some of these topics that, we, that Katie just mentioned in the introduction, I want to hear just how did you get into psychology and kind of what was the pathway that led to where you are currently? Yeah, so I didn't know much about psychology before I went to college, or maybe it's better to say I, I had a lot of weird ideas about psychology. So a, a pivotal experience for me was the movie Silence of the Lambs, which came out sure. while I was in high school. And uh, so I kind of thought maybe that's sort of what psychology is. Um, I also, you know, I think the the things that I thought psychology was were things having to do with uh, sort of alternative mental states. So meditation, mysticism, hypnosis, LSD. I, I, I was not a, I never, I've never in my life tried LSD, but, uh, um, I had a friend who was really into Timothy Leary and gave me some of his books. And so I, I kind of thought that's all what psychology is about. It's sort of funny because now I'm into Timothy Leary for the, like the super dry nerdy, uh, in, interpersonal theory stuff, uh, rather than the cool LSD and shrooms. <laughs> Um, but, uh, so I didn't, uh, you know, going into college, I didn't know much about psychology at all. I took intro to psych my first year, kind of, uh, kind of out of curiosity and kind of because I had a late registration slot and there wasn't much else left. <laughs> and so I, uh, I took intro to psych with, uh, someone who was actually an adjunct at the time, um, Michael Apter, who, uh, has had a really interesting career, kind of. He, he's sort of done visiting stints at different places, and he just taught a terrific intro to psych class, and it got me really interested. And so I just thought, okay, I'll take another one of these psychology classes. And I just sort of kept taking more psychology classes until finally I got to the point where it was like I had to decide on a major um, or else like I, it was going to be too late to finish college. And so I, I went with psychology. Um, and you know, along the way, the those initial things that I thought were interesting, um, I realized their lesson psychology was about. But I had always been a science nerd as a kid, and the sort of science nerd side of me connected with psychology in a way I hadn't expected to, and and so that um, so it sort of appealed to another part of me in in just as much of a way as as kind of what got me curious in the first place. Um, so for a while, I. Th thought I wanted to be a clinical psychologist. And in fact, as a as an undergraduate, I did a practicum at a methadone clinic just outside of Chicago. Um, and it was a really, it was a really interesting experience. I still have very vivid, formative memories of 
you know, I was doing intake interviews, meeting with heroin addicts and other folks who were trying to get admitted to treatment at this clinic. Um, there was a, a clinical psychologist who let me sit in on group therapy sessions and encouraged me to to sort of participate, although I, I never spoke. I felt pretty, uh, um, you know, this was a, a, you know, people with experiences that were very different from mine. Um, and, and so, but that was a really, I think, formative experience. But ultimately, I, I think I, you know, at the same time or shortly after that, I got involved in research and it, it kind of having had a taste of both, I really just sort of got on fire about research. So, as an undergraduate, I, I worked in a couple of different lab settings, doing some neuroscience stuff, some cognitive psychology, and then I I got connected with Dan McAdams, who's a personality psychologist um, at Northwestern, where I went to undergrad, and really ended up sort of uh, I think getting the most excited about personality psychology through my connection with Dan. Um, so I finished school and thought that I would, you know, eventually want to go to grad school. Um, I took a year in between undergrad and, and grad school, decided to apply, um, and ended up working with Ravenna Halson and Oliver John at Berkeley uh, for grad school. So um, so that was kind of how I got, got into psychology. Um, and I, you know, I came to grad school thinking I wanted to work on some things, some of which I continued to, some of which I didn't. Um, so I, I continued working uh, with, so both Ravenna and Oliver worked on this uh, very longstanding study called the Mills Longitudinal Study. And it was, a. Um, so I, I started grad school in the mid-90s, and at that point it had been going on for about 40 years. And it, Ravenna had wow. started it in 1958. Um, and so it was a study of women's adult development um, that had started with, a, with two college cohorts of women um, that had graduated from Mills College in 1958 and 1960, and they had been followed through their entire adult lives. And so I did work on the Mills study. Uh, Ravenna had, had founded it and was still running it, and Oliver had sort of joined it. Um, and then through Oliver, uh, became exposed to this area of interpersonal perception research, which is based a lot on a social psychologist named Dave Kenny. He's done a lot of really foundational work developing some of the analytic models that we use, as well as sort of doing a lot of the foundational work um, and really got excited about interpersonal perception. And, and that kind of um, became the basis for a lot of what I do. And then in, in I did some additional training after grad school uh, with James Gross, who is a, um, a sort of emotion researcher, I guess is the best way to describe his field, affective neuroscience and emotion. Um, he had a longitudinal study looking at college students' emotional development during college, and so I worked on that. And so that that's kind of, and then I that sort of leads me up to, I guess, my, my job at the University of Oregon, but that was kind of how I got into it. One of the things that prompted this episode was a super interesting Black Goat episode about personality and personality tests. So I found it particularly interesting that your lab approaches personality from these different perspectives across the lifespan, self versus other perception, and within different social contexts. Would you mind first telling our listeners how you define personality and then describing some of the findings that you've been most excited about? Yeah, sure. So I... You know, it's interesting defining personality, I think, in part because it's it's the we're un, an unusual subfield. This is going to sound like a weird way to answer the question, but we're we're an unusual subfield because the name of our subfield is a noun. Um, and, and what I mean by that is like if if you if you're a cognitive psychologist, you, you don't necessarily feel like you have to define what is cognition in order to do your work. But um, personality psychology, there's this sort of thing where personality psychologists, we all spend a lot of time trying to define, well, what is personality in a way that, you know, and, and it's not that cognitive psychologists never think about what is cognition. Um, a lot of them do. And it's a sort of interesting philosophical question or, you know, what is development or, you know, what is, I don't know. I don't know if you, do you guys ever think what is a clinic? I don't know what the, no, <laughs> not yeah. much. I mean, <laughs> maybe, maybe in passing, but you're right. I, I guess in cognitive psychology, maybe people are focused more on things like memory or the particular thing that they're looking at. And we're more 
at least in clinical psychology, often I'm focused on suicidal behavior and eating disorders. So yeah, you're right yeah. about that. Yeah. So I I think the you know in one sense if you if you if you frame the question as like what does a personality psychologist study, I think that that's a slight it's more it's more similar to that in the sense that it's a domain of inquiry. Um, but there there is a long history of personality psychologists going all the way back to Gordon Alport, who's kind of most people consider him and Henry Murray to be the two founders of personality psychology. And, and Allport um, talked about this question of, sort of we ha you know, how do we define what personality is as a sort of precursor to studying it? And he called it the units problem. So he said, you know, if, we're, if you're going to describe somebody's personality, what are the units? What are the sort of conceptual units that you're going to use to describe it? And you know, you can, so you can describe somebody in terms of their, you know, if, if like a, a Freudian would say their unconscious motives and, and, you know, the sort of unconscious dynamics. So you could describe someone that in terms of what are their unconscious motives, you could describe someone as Henry Murray did in terms of maybe their conscious goals and motives. Um, and then another way that's really popular in contemporary personality psychology that, that Allport kind of started is describing people in terms of their traits. And so the, to the broad question of like, what is person? And then uh, another, another approach I should mention, which is what Dan McAdams, who got me started in personality psychology, his focus is that he studies personality through the lens of people's life stories. So your part of your personality is how you narrate your whole identity, as well as how you narrate important events in your life. So I take a really sort of broad and diverse approach to defining what personality is in the sense that the same way like a co you know, within cognitive psychology, you'd have lots of it would be a domain of inquiry and there'd be lots of specific things, attention or memory and and so forth. And, and one of the things, because a lot of the work that I do is on traits and traits is kind of the dominant approach in personality psychology that I, I feel some responsibility to remind myself as well as sort of when I talk about personality psychology to others to remind others that it's more than just that um, because we're sort of the, you know, the, the, the heavy player or whatever. Um, so, yeah, so within, within sort of personality psychology, this, this trait approach is really built around describing personality through sort of descriptive terms that describe stable and sometimes people will say cross-situationally consistent although that not everyone latches onto that but these sort of like st stable individual differences that can be described and that refer to sort of socially meaningful behavior so there are individual differences at lots of levels of analysis there's individual differences in your blood pressure and your you know um how your brain is structured and that kind of thing and, and personality psychologists study sort of how people differ from one another at the level of interest that a sort of a person interacting with other people would find interesting and worth talking about. Um, and some of that is really baked into the field. So the, the big five is probably the most popular model of personality traits used by academic researchers. And the big five is derived from the natural language of social perception. So it's, it's derived from analyses of natural language and how people describe themselves and one another, which I, I can go into that more if, if you're interested at, at some point. Um, but so I find it really useful for my work because it, it bridges between I'm, – I'm interested in interpersonal perception. So I'm interested in how people form judgments and impressions of one another and where those come from and what they do with them. So so it's very natural to use this kind of natural language approach that the way people talk about personality is useful when I do a study and ask them to describe personality. Um, but there's also a large body of research showing that these ways that normal people describe personality do correspond to real meaningful behavior. There's a lot of work on sort of behavioral correlates and the, you know, the, the underlying processes and, and the neuroscience and the genetics and all that stuff. So it's, it's kind of a really, for me, a really useful framework that I can, if I'm trying to understand, like, how do people form impressions in different settings? There's this whole body of work that helps me link it to, well, what are they actually like and how might these impressions be accurate or inaccurate or, or that sort of thing.
That, that's really helpful. And if you wouldn't mind explaining a little bit more of just the big five and what they are, just in case our listeners aren't familiar with that, that, that would be great. Yeah, sure. So the big five is a, I, I, I say is instead of are. So, so the big five sort of collectively is what we sometimes call a structural model. So it's a, um, you, a structural model is like a list of variables and some basic relationships among them. So I'm, I'm going to make a really highfalutin comparison that, that the big five doesn't deserve to be held up next to. But if you think of like the periodic table in front of your chemistry classroom, right? Like it's a, it's a list of the conceptual, if you're studying chemistry and you're answering questions about like, you know, chemistry, what is stuff made of and how does it combine whatever the periodic table is like, it's a list of what are the important units that you're interested in the elements and some basic information about them. And, and sort of, uh, it's arranged in a particular way that reflects certain relationships that they have. And so you can kind of, again, it's not as sophisticated. It's not as well established, but you can kind of think of like, what is the big five as it's, it's doing something in a really general sense kind of similar for personality psychology. It's delineating what are some important conceptual units and relations among them and so forth. Um, and where it comes from is, so way back about a, almost 100 years ago, Gordon Allport and uh, um, one of his graduate students, they started by saying, well, if we want to study traits, where where should we look? Uh, and, and they 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 came up with this idea to look to natural language, and and it's sometimes called the lexical hypothesis. This idea that the important differences between people are going to come to be represented in natural language, because if they matter, if they're important, then people will you know cultures and and language groups will come up with words to describe them. So if there's some important way. You have to differentiate people, there'll be a word for it. And so Alport and Odebert, using this lexical hypothesis, they went through an unabridged dictionary and said, let's make a list of all the words we can find that could be used to describe a person. And they came up with something like 18,000 words. It was like some absurd number of words in the English language. Um, and, and from that, people over the years took those lists and they pared them down in different ways. They said... Okay, let's leave off words that are describing physical characteristics. Let's leave off words that are just purely evaluative, horrible and wonderful and that kind of thing. Um, and let's try to sort of come up with and let's get rid of obscure words and rare words and, and redundant words and all of that and try to come up with a more manageable set of lists that we could call personality traits. And then once that was sort of developed, uh, then asking people to use those words to describe themselves or one another in rating scales and then using statistical analyses, primarily an analysis called factor analysis that kind of is meant to reduce the complexity and find a common set of dimensions that describe the big, that just describe these, that these sort of words cluster along. And so the big five is kind of the product of that whole long process. So starting with what are all the words that could describe a person, narrow it down, use statistics to sort of find the underlying dimensions and you get the big five and it's the big five. Isn't the only model that has come out of that kind of approach. So there's a big six, um, which I also sometimes use in some of my work. There's a lot of really interesting work that my colleague here at Oregon, Gerard Sose has done trying to use similar methods in different cultures because a lot of that earlier work, was done either in English-speaking North American samples or in in sort of German and, and some other sort of Western European language groups that had not a lot of cultural and linguistic uh, diversity. And so Gerard has done a lot of work looking what are the common threads across cultures? You know, are there some dimensions that you see everywhere? Are there some dimensions that you don't? And, and Gerard's emphasis is trying to find sort of what's the universal language of personality. Um, and you get... You can sort of get the big five out of that. You get a lot more agreement if you sort of make a broader set of cuts and get one or two dimensions. Um, but that's that's sort of where this comes from. And so this is now the basis for a lot of research. So some personality psychologists just say, okay, I want to study 
let's say, you know, I, I want to study. So in my case, I want to study how personality changes or remains stable during adulthood. And so the big five now is this list of variables and there's way there's sort of well-developed measurement techniques. And if I want to know how does personality change during adulthood, I can use the big five. I can administer an accepted measure. I can use, there's this whole body of literature that'll help me interpret my results. And I can see what happens. Do people become more or less extroverted? Do they become more or less uh, conscientious at different points in the lifespan? So that's, that's one way that people use it. And then the other, which is the other half of my research or another way that people use it, is to use as a language of interpersonal perception to say, setting aside what people are actually like, if I want to understand how do people form impressions when they first meet and do people agree with each other and are there certain stereotypes or, or forms of inaccuracy? Um, again, this is sort of like a list of variables and a, a body of work behind it that, to help you interpret what you find. Well, that, thank you for that explanation. I think that really helps give a strong background. And actually, you mentioning extroversion reminded me of what I thought was a really interesting point on that podcast episode, that it seems like there's kind of a common understanding that extroversion is are, are people who don't get tired after social interactions, but that that might not be entirely true or data-based. Do you mind saying a little bit about that? Yeah, so... And I, I honestly don't really know the answer to this. So, so, but something that is discussed, I've seen it discussed in some popular treatments of introversion and extroversion. Um, it's part of the interpretive framework for the Myers-Briggs, which is a, a very popular personality test that has its own kind of slightly different conception of extroversion, but um, uses, there's a, an extroversion dimension in there. This idea that one of the things that differentiates extroverts and introverts is that introverts get exhausted by social interaction and need to recharge and extroverts don't. And um, I've, I've looked a little bit, I've poked around in research trying to find if anyone's ever actually studied that and documented it. And I've also poked around in some of my own data that I have um, that could potentially speak to that. And, and this is not a definitive, like this is not a result I would write up for a journal because I, I don't think I've, in my own data, done it sort of rigorously enough to like, you know, shout home about it or whatever. But so far, I haven't been able to find a lot of empirical support for that. And you know, one of the things, like, you say that to introverts and, and they say, yeah, I need to recharge after social interactions, but it's not clear that extroverts don't also need to recharge after social interactions. And I, it might just be that socializing is kind of, you know, fun and energizing, but also wears on you a little while and you need to recharge afterwards. And so um, it's one of these examples of, it's like this piece of folk wisdom that gets repeated. And I think, introverts really sort of resonate with it and so that's part of where it gets repeated um and maybe i don't know maybe it might be true but uh it may also be that like the extroverts are sitting there thinking well me too but they're talking about introverts so i guess maybe not so much or you know um yeah but there there is a lot of um uh, i mean that's one of the it's a good example of why it's important to do research even on these concepts that are part of everyday language that are part of how people just normally think and talk about one another because there there are a lot of these kind of truisms or, or bits of conventional wisdom and some of them probably are true but some of them probably aren't and and you know it's it's valuable to sort out which ones are which yes. speaking of which what what have been some of the findings that you've been most excited about over your research career yeah so let me give you a, a recent one that we're in the process of writing up um, right now. And this is some work that uh, graduate student Corey Costello in my lab has been doing. So um, I'm so so a lot of the work that I've done in the past to, on interpersonal perception has been, you know, how do people form impressions in different settings, impressions of different things when they meet face to face. So we do a lot of studies where we might bring in two people into the lab who don't know each other yet, and they do some task together, or, and and afterwards we ask them their impressions, or we might bring in a small group. We've done a lot of studies like that as well, again, who don't know each other yet. Um, and so these are sort of impressions people form 
from face-to-face interactions. And there's also a lot of work that other people have done looking at impressions formed in other ways from social media profiles. And I'm starting to do some of that in my lab as well. But, you know, impressions formed from like you see someone's social media profile or you see their physical space or other kinds of things. One of the really important ways that in in the real world that people form impressions is through gossip and reputation. And there's a lot of really interesting work in, I don't know if there's a lot, there's some really interesting empirical work in like anthropology, looking at communities and that sort of thing. But to our knowledge, there's been very little work done in psychology with real people in real interactions. So you can, you can, do a study where you like tell someone, oh, I heard about this thing, and you give them a vignette or something, but but where you actually have real human beings forming impressions and then talking about them, there hasn't been a whole lot of work in that uh, in psychology. And so Corey developed a experimental procedure where we bring three or four people in the into the lab at a time, and we have a set of interactions. Um, where people get to know each other and then they meet new people and they gossip about the people they just met. And so we're forming these sort of mini reputation networks in the lab. Um, And for the first studies, everybody is strangers. Um, That was just a starting point. That's not because that's the only interesting context for studying reputation. Um, But in the first studies, for various reasons, we decided to start with strangers sort of gossiping about each other and so what what's emerging from that and and hopefully we're going to submit this to a journal pretty soon we're we're pretty close on it you know what's emerging from that is that in in the particular context in which we started we're seeing evidence that these reputations are they're sort of cementing as a consensus so people agree about the reputation they agree about this person they've never met but have only heard about um but they're not there's not nearly as much accuracy as there is consensus. Um, so the idea being like these reputations are solidifying, but they're not necessarily correct. Um, so, so people in, in the larger network might agree what they think someone's like, but they're, they're all wrong about in the same way or about the same thing. Um, so, so that's, that's kind of, I, I think I'm excited about this for a couple of reasons. One that these initial findings are really interesting because they do suggest that, you know, there's a little bit of accuracy. Re- these reputations aren't inaccurate, but there's not as much as there is agreement. And and that's, I think, a really important thing to be able to document. And, and you know, it gets a little more nuanced where we can kind of see for some traits, there's more accuracy for some, there's less. Um, but I'm also just excited as a sort of as a researcher, as a methodologist and a, a sort of experimentalist slash non-experimental personality psychologist that I'm really excited about the method and the paradigm because this is something that we can now, we can vary this endless ways. And so we've already tried like changing people's goals. Like, are you trying to form an impression of a certain kind of thing? And, and do you know if you're conveying it accurately and that kind of thing? And, and it's a, it's a whole new horizon where there's been so little sort of controlled work there's been a lot of really interesting ethnographic and field work on reputations as they naturally occur and we've now got a way to sort of isolate what's going on um in in pieces and understand sort of some of the the processes that this is happening with well that's so exciting that's what i think about when i think about the creativity in science is how exciting it can be to try to solve this puzzle of how can we study this and have a certain amount of control over variables, even though it's a complex type of interaction and situation. So that that is really exciting. Thanks for sharing that with us. Yeah, thanks for asking me about it. It's I'm I'm really excited about it. And Corey's done some really amazing work. So hopefully in the not too distant future, uh, <laughs> yeah, we'll some hopefully we'll convince a journal to let us tell the world about it. Sanjay, I want to circle back to kind of the Myers-Briggs and other personality tests. I know another part of that podcast episode that Katie had mentioned um, had included kind of discussion about some of the discrepancy between tests that personality researchers tend to like using in their work versus some of the tests that seem um, more popular with the public. And I'm just wondering if you would mind giving maybe an example of each and highlighting some of the main differences between those two types of tests. Sure. So 
I think probably one of the most popular ones that's in general use is the Myers-Briggs type indicator, MBTI, or people just call it the Myers-Briggs. And, um, and I, I, you know, I can contrast that with the Big Five inventory, which is a questionnaire that I use a lot in my own work. Um, and and I, I think it's I think a lot of these differences generally to some of the other tests that might be specific to, to these. But so one, one important difference is between whether they're trying to categorize people into discrete types. So you're either an introvert or an extrovert, and that's how the Myers-Briggs generally works versus um, most personality psychologists uh, who've studied this have concluded that personality most important things about personality are distributed as continuous traits. So it's not you're extrovert or introverted, but you're somewhere on a continuum. So that's that's one difference. Um, the Myers-Briggs was designed with a very strong goal to make it non-evaluative, to make it the case that it's not on these on these sort of dichotomies, it's not better to be one or the other. It's not better to be introverted than extroverted. It's not better to be... Um, you know, feeling versus thinking, et cetera. Um, whereas the the big five inventory wasn't didn't have that pre-conclusion baked in one way or the other. So it, it wasn't designed to be evaluative. It wasn't designed to be non-evaluative. It, the way it was created allowed that to emerge. And it just so happens that most of the big five dimensions, there is a one end of the dimension is generally considered more desirable or more positive or people would prefer to be on or would prefer other people be on. So that, that's a, another difference is the sort of non-evaluative versus evaluative. Um, that by itself, you know, that it's not better to be evaluative or non-evaluative. I, I sort of think like if, if the differences between people are evaluative, then that's how it should be. And if they're not evaluative, they're not. And so, so I do sort of like the big five because of how it got there, but I don't care what the conclusion is. If, if that process had led to something else, that would have been fine. But I think one of, one of the other probably um, big differences is that as a result of the Myers-Briggs, when they created it, them trying to make it non-evaluative is that what, what seems to have happened in the creation, and I don't know the, the full history, so I'm sort of reading back into this a little bit, but um, the in order to make these dichotomies non-evaluative, what they had to do was mix together things that don't necessarily go together. Um, and and I'll, an example of that, I mentioned earlier that the Myers-Briggs has a slightly different definition of extroversion, almost different than any other um, whether it's the big five or there are other personality systems that use a concept of extroversion. But in the Myers-Briggs, if you're introverted, the the way the items that go into the scoring and the interpretive framework says that introverts are quiet and reserved, but that they're also introspective and thoughtful. And one of the things we know from the data-driven work that led to the big five is those things don't necessarily go together so in in if you look at the distributions of different characteristics in people some people who are quiet and reserved really are thoughtful and introspective and but there are almost as many people who are quiet and reserved who are not thoughtful and introspective <laughs> um uh those those are two, and in the big five those are two different dimensions it's extroversion is just about being sort of outgoing and talkative versus quiet reserved and then there's this other dimension called openness to experience that uh, on the high pole has being introspective and thoughtful um and so one of one of the consequences of that is that the myers-briggs doesn't make this important distinction and it sort of lumps these two things together. Um, and the reason was because at least in American culture, outgoing and energetic is considered more positive. And so they kind of put this other positive introspective thing on the low pole of that to make it nice to be an introvert. Um, but it, it just, yeah, it just turns out that some introverts, um, you know, sort of like there's that saying still waters run deep and it, it turns out yeah. that sometimes still waters are shallow. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things was um, that, that you had talked about too, which I found really interesting on the episode is that you and your co-host were talking about, well, why are people more into certain kinds of personality tests than others? And I think, it's more obvious on the face if it's like, which Harry Potter house <laughs> are you? And, you know, 
are you sorted into or which Star Wars character because those, I don't know, they kind of tie in pop culture. But beyond that, you you mentioned things like the Myers-Briggs. One of them is the categorical sense. And even though things that later we'll talk about Paul Meal, who predicted that a lot of things in nature would be dimensional, it's easier to think about things as categorical. This certainly comes up with mental health disorders, for example. Um, but so that people like the the categorical nature, but the other part was that you're unlocking something that's would otherwise be hidden. And so it seems like the big five, because it is from natural language, that it might seem more obvious in a way that doesn't feel as interesting or doesn't pull people as much. But it was nice to hear that your students seem to like or respond positively to learning about where they fall in the big five personality traits in your class. Um, and I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that experience that you had with teaching the big five to your class. Yeah. So, so I, when I teach intro to psych, I do try to, I spend a fair amount of time on the big five and I, I get into some of the dry details like factor analysis, which some of, some of my colleagues avoid, but I, I feel obliged because I'm a personality psychologist to actually cover. Um, but we also, you know, I have them do a big five inventory um, and they get their scores and I cover in class the interpretive framework. I don't, I don't avoid categories. I'll often give them more than two. So, you know, instead of saying you're an extrovert or an introvert, I might say, well, here, here's your score. You're a, you know, a 78 and, and that's medium high or, or, or whatever um, to at least give them some sense of where they fall in the continuum. Um, I often, in a large enough class, and when I teach intro to psych, it's like 500 students, so that's <laughs> larger than most psychology study samples. And so I can I can tell them rel specifically, like relative to your classmates, so I can kind of ground the experience for them a little bit and say, look around, like you know, here here is your score, where it falls in the distribution relative to the other people in this room, and I uh, hopefully that makes that a little more real to them. Um, and I, I find that I have to avoid both sort of over-interpreting and under-interpreting. So, you know, that idea that personality tests reveal some hidden knowledge about you, I think where that, so the big five, like you said, it, because it's natural language, it doesn't inherently have that. But when I start talking about what correlates with the big five, I worry a little bit that they'll take it too seriously. And, you know, one of the things... I cover when I when I teach about the big five is I talk about the correlation between conscientiousness and life expectancy. And I'm, I'm, that's always where I'm the most worried. I don't want like the low conscientiousness people to think they're going to die next week or anything like that. So I, I always have to sort of try to contextualize and say these are probabilistic associations and, and these are really loose. And this is like this would be our best guess. But, it, you know, and, and most of you are going to live long anyway and whatever. Um, so I do I do try to avoid them sort of over interpreting that way. And I think that the the other risk is for them you know, in terms of under-interpreting, just that I think most of us have, we have access to experiences where we've been at all points on any one of these continua. So even if, let's say, you're a pretty extroverted person, there have been times when you've been introverted because of your situation or because of your mood or whatever. And so I think it's very natural and intuitive. You get one number and you're like, well, I'm not always like that. Um, and in fact, I think some of the better scientific approaches to the big five incorporate that in. So I often end up in class talking about Will Fleeson, who's a personality psychologist at Wake Forest, has done some really interesting work showing that if you have people report on like, not what's your personality overall, but like, what's your personality been over the last hour? And then you have that do, them do that a bunch of times over over a few weeks. Um, you get a distribution where, you know, you'd say, oh, Sanjay, most of the time you were low in agreeableness, but there were like, you know, 25% of the time you were above the midpoint or whatever. Um, and so you get kind of a distribution. And what these questionnaires tell you is the sort of average of your distribution. Um, so they don't negate the fact that sometimes you're, you know, you, you may be this amount of agreeableness on average, but sometimes you're more than that, sometimes you're less than that. And that what the number that the questionnaire gave you is kind of your personal average. 
Sanjay, I want to switch gears just a little bit and talk about your blog, um, The Hardest Science. And the, I think the name of your blog is really cool. And your website has a really great kind of description about the story behind it. But I'm wondering if you would kind of share with the listeners um, what you mean when you call psychology the hardest science. Yeah, so this started um, the I think I, I can't even remember now. I think I started blogging in 2009 or 2010. Um, and I think it was 09. And the so you know I, I had this idea to start a blog and and I was trying to think of a name for it and I so I I ended up naming it after something that I'd sort of probably a little too clever by half this uh, title of a talk I had given at SPSB the Society of Personality and Social Psychology conference um, and and so this talk was it was part of a training series so it was mostly an audience of graduate students and. The title of the talk was Making Progress in the Hardest Science. And it, it was really just a play on this idea, the hard sciences, quote unquote, um, and psychology being a soft science. And the, the sort of the play was like the other meaning of hard is in difficult and, and saying that, you know, psychology is one of the most difficult sciences because we have this incredibly complex difficult context dependent object of study which is the human mind um and so so i sort of you know to this audience of graduate students it was this kind of like rah rah where you know we're not this it's not the hard and soft sciences it's the hard and easy sciences and you know atoms always behave the same way but your subjects are are difficult and so we're the hard one and they're the easy one and whatever um, it was it was very much sort of like playing to the room, um, and so so when I when I got the idea to start blogging um, and was trying to think of a name, I thought oh I'll 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 bring that in and and I'll incorporate that, and I, I I still like having that as the name of my blog. I did when I got a Twitter account a little bit later, um, I I used that uh, as my Twitter handle um, at hard sci, and and I feel a little self conscious about like what was basically a sort of insider uh, back padding boast as now being my Twitter handle. But like at a certain point, it got too late to change. And, and so anyway, that's yeah, that's the story. I, I, I like it a lot. I think that recognizing those individual differences and things like you said and the, the complicated parts of it is important. Of course, I'm in psychology, so <laughs> I would say that. <laughs> I like pointing out that it is actually a hard science. <laughs> Once again, I'm I'm playing I'm playing exactly, to the <laughs> and it is working. <laughs> um, so one one of the ways that I first learned about your work was reading through your blog posts and learning more about the open science movement and um, some of your work with the Society for the Improvement of Psychological Science, which I'll I'll link to both of those in the show notes. And I love that you reference Paul Meal on some of your posts. Paul Meal is a big part of kind of my introductory to graduate school, they sent us why you do not, why I do not attend case conferences by Paul Meal the summer before I started grad school. And then my students, as Brandon knows, because Brandon was in this class, I also continue the meal tradition. And um, he's kind of throughout our curriculum. So I, I was excited to see the references to Paul Meal. What drew you to Meal and what are some of his greatest lessons for today's psychologists, do you think? Yeah, I, I feel uh, so I love that article. I feel guilty saying that I love it because I'm not a clinical <laughs> psychologist and I'm, I'm always afraid I'm going to be accused of schadenfreude. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it, it's such a it's such a great article. And I think I think if you read it and think, haha, those silly clinical people, you're you're missing the chance to apply its lessons elsewhere. But anyway, um, I I think, you know, I can't remember exactly. I, I encountered Paul Meal in a few different ways when I was a grad student. So one was, I, I definitely remember Oliver John, my, my advisor, giving me an article about his work on taxometrics. So Meal did this uh, work developing statistical techniques to answer this question, which came up earlier about, like, how do you know whether something is a discrete type like you're either this or that you're either introvert or extrovert or either depressed or not depressed right is it that or is it a continuum and meal did this work trying to sort of both from a sort of conceptual and philosophical basis say what what does that distinction actually mean and then are there 
ways we can sort of try to figure it out through data, which, which way we should think about it. So that was one way I encountered him. Um, his work, and this may have actually been through the case conferences article you mentioned, um, but I, I sort of went through a period where I was really excited about his work on clinical versus actuarial mm-hmm. judgment. So this this idea of, you know, we we tend to think that like in in especially with sort of soft fuzzy things that um, you know a human judgment is superior, but that there are a lot of instances where a scoring algorithm outperforms a person um, and. And so that was really interesting. But I think that probably the work that has stayed with me the longest or that I, I return to the most and, and that I've blogged about is his work that was at this, really at the intersection of philosophy of science and psychology research methods. Um, so early on, I think I was still in graduate school when I, when I read this. There's this amazing, dense, difficult, but rewarding article he wrote for the journal Psychological Inquiry um, called appraising and amending theories, and it 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 was my first exposure to Paul Lack- uh, Imre Lakatos, who was a um, a philosopher of science and and kind of built on the work of Karl Popper. And Meal talks a lot about applying Lakatos to psychology and trying to understand what does it mean to make progress, to make scientific progress? And when do we, when is changing a theory a good thing and when is it a bad thing? Like when are, when are we just sort of trying to prop something up that's, that's sinking and we should let it go? Um, as well as sort of trying to get beyond questions about statistical inference, which is a really difficult problem, and say, well, once we've solved that, like, how do we construct good theories so we can make valid statistical inferences, but they may be valid inferences about a useless theory. Um, and so, yeah, so that that's Mill's work on sort of theory construction, theory appraisal, um, and a, a whole slew of challenges he discussed. Some are very general, some are specific to psychology or subfields of psychology he coined this term the prod factor which is um, a real challenge to doing null hypothesis significance testing in personality psychology um and so yeah so that, that was kind of my my exposure to him and he's one of there's a small handful of writers and and articles that i've returned to periodically since graduate school and learn something new every time I read them. Um, and, and his articles are, are one of those, um, uh, for sure that, that just every time I go back because I'm teaching it or, or just, I have some reason to go back to it. I see more in it. Um, and it, it's sort of newly relevant to things I'm thinking about at the time. Thanks for sharing that. Um, I will link to that post where you mentioned that psychological inquiry paper too for our listeners who because I love the passage that you pulled out for that because I think it describes the process of science and the relevance of statistical significance very clearly through that um, cake recipe analogy (laughs) (laughs) I think very helpful yeah Sanjay something that I really enjoy about your podcast maybe for obviously selfish reasons is that you start (laughs) each show by responding to letters um, from folks who are seeking advice and, and why I feel selfish about it is because it's many of them are from graduate students or early career researchers. And so obviously that's a piece that I've really connected with and, and appreciated, I mean, as well as all of the rest of it. But I'm wondering just a couple of questions um, about the Black Coat podcast. Um, what does the name of the show mean and kind of what were your goals in starting it? Yeah, so the the name of it is i don't know if we we might have said this once on the show i don't know if we did um uh we so we had decided to do a podcast together and we couldn't come up with a name and we had scheduled a time to record our first episode and we still and we were texting back and forth and we'd come up with these different ideas and and you know like we'd come up with something it would sound cool and then i'd go and google it and find out there's already something with that name um and so so it was kind of a last minute it was literally like five minutes before we started recording that we settled on it but so the black goat is um it's sort of a play on black sheep and sort of like being the, the sort of difficult uh, difficult member of the group um it's sort of a play on 
the black swan and this idea of like um you know in in sort of inductive inference and falsification the idea of like you know events that happen that make you reject everything you thought before um but it's also in large part because samin really likes goats and <laughs> so we were we were throwing around a bunch of goat names so at, at we were this close to calling the podcast goat rodeo um, which is like a, a sort of a, I hadn't heard it before, but apparently it's like a slang term for basically calling something a shit show. Um, <laughs> but it, it turned out that there was already a podcast called Goat Rodeo. That we just found out at the last minute because we were all excited about Goat Rodeo. So anyway, so that that's sort of the name was kind of like it, it was just this sort of confluence and last minute decision. Um, but uh, and now, like any time, like every year when I take my son to the pumpkin patch and they have goats there and I always get a goat selfie and text it to Samina and Alexa, <laughs> you know, so it's like a thing now. Um, yeah. And then sorry, I'm sorry. What was the other part of your question? Oh, really? Just kind of what were the main goals in, in starting the show? Yeah. So, you know, I um, kind of similar with with blogging, although I think I had a little more clear idea with this. But when I started blogging, I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my blog. I just thought it would be neat to start a blog. I had some vague ideas and I I sort of figured it out as I went along. And what I found with the blog was that I naturally gravitated towards topics that were about the profession, the academic profession, about science, methodology. So more to kind of an audience of peers in the sense of sometimes younger earlier career sometimes not but sort of speaking to other academic professionals in psychology and and other fields and so i think that was i think we knew a little bit more and samin had had a blog already as well um and which with a similar kind of orientation and so when the three of us decided to start a, a podcast i think that was kind of our our thinking was that you know, talking about issues related to the academic profession, related to open science, re- related to professional ethics, as well as we've done a number of episodes that are, I, I sort of think of them as like, they're about being a human being in academia. So we did an episode on imposter syndrome, and we did an episode on sort of being different in various ways in terms of race or gender or sexual orientation within academia. So that that's kind of the you know, we, and we, we try not, one of the nice things also, and this was like some of my experience starting a blog, I was like, we can't have a name that means anything because if we decide we want to do something else, we don't want to be constrained by it. So <laughs> when we came up with the name, we were, we were all thinking like, it has to be vague enough that like, if we end up deciding we want to go in a different direction, you know, if this is like the open science podcast and we get sick of talking about open science, what are we going to do? Um, so, so having a vague name really helps in that respect. Is the show kind of mainly targeted toward an audience of grad students and early career researchers, or has it kind of broadened beyond that? Or who do you kind of sense are the main audience of your show? It's a great question. And I, I don't know who actually listens to us. I, we, so, so we do the letters segment and that, that's definitely, we, we've gotten letters and, and done letters from people that are far more accomplished and senior than I am. Um, and I'm, uh, I'm not the most accomplished one in the podcast. I'm the most senior one, but we've gotten, we've gotten letters from, you know, once or twice from some very distinguished people, but mostly the letters are from grad students or very early career people. And I, I think that's sort of natural with like an advice column ish kind of thing. Um, and the idea for that was Samina and Alexa had had this idea before we came up with doing the podcast, they'd sort of been toying with the idea of doing a, like a website that would be a sort of academic dear Abby. And so we, we kind of ended up folding that into the podcast idea. Um, other than that, the, the topics we do, I think are sometimes they're more early career focused. Like we've done one on the academic job market, but a lot of them are probably of broad interest. And so I, I, it's a really, I, this is one of the weird things about doing a podcast is we know we have listeners because we hear from people and, and we can, you know, I'm mean, you, you, I'm sure you guys know, like you get statistics from your podcast server or whatever. You can see how many people downloaded an episode, but I don't really know who's listening. Um, so, so I'm guessing it's probably more graduate students than 
faculty. I'm guessing it's more academic. I'm almost, I'm positive it's got to be more academic than non-academic. I don't know. We'll ever once in a while hear from somebody who's just like, I just like listening to podcasts and I heard about you guys. And I'm like, that's awesome, but why? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We don't talk about anything that's interesting to normal people, but um, uh yeah, so I, I, I don't really know. And we've sort of tossed around, maybe at some point we'll do a listener survey and just sort of put up a, a link to find out. Um, but I, I really don't know. Like, do you, do you guys know who listens? Because you, you have a somewhat different orientation. I think you're, sometimes you, you guys seem to have more sort of academic insider folks, but also you seem to have a lot of stuff that's got a more sort of broader appeal than us do you do you have you ever done a survey or how do you know who listens to you well we have never done a survey and i don't think that we have a great sense either but just my sense based on tweeting and kind of interactions and messages that we get has generally been that i my guess and i could be totally off is that the majority of our listeners are not academic and are generally Mm -hmm. people who are just tend to be interested and kind of the psychological concepts that we're, we're kind of talking about. And that's traditionally been kind of how we've geared the show, I guess, is more towards thinking about the way that we teach, I guess, and trying to keep it at kind of that teaching level. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was kind of curious if, if it's, uh, yeah, if it, you know, because, I mean, you have definitely the sci-fi and, mm-hmm. and sort of nerd geek Mm -hmm. angle too yes so is it like yeah do you get a lot of sci-fi geeks or is it people interested in mental health or is it the intersect yeah yeah it's anyway that's really it's a very niche group of four people who who are interested in just that very small and brenda and i are two of those yes yeah we're half of them and then you sometimes when you're in the gym i'm I'm three yes oh good well now we don't need a survey Just for our listeners who aren't familiar with open science, we'll link to it, but is there kind of a, maybe a short description as to what that means, since that is a big focus of your podcast? It's, that's a really good question. I, um, I mean, there is definitely lots of articles. There's a lot that's been written on it. It's, you know, I've been thinking a lot about, people talk about the open science movement and, and I've, I've got a friend who's a sociologist who follows a lot of this discussion and we've had a couple of conversations about sort of taking seriously the movement part of that word or that phrase, um, that the idea that it's a social movement within the sciences. Um, and one of the, one of the interesting things about, and so it's, it's gotten me talking to him. It's gotten me more sort of thinking about like what are social movements and one of the interesting things about social movements is that they don't always have a sort of necessary and sufficient set of like they a social movement doesn't have a constitution or bylaws or a manifesto necessarily so in the general sense like some sort of themes that bring together open science are wanting science to be i mean as the name implies open wanting it to be transparent and verifiable so the idea of scientific knowledge and the ways that we reach scientific conclusions being something that anybody has access to sort of how the sausage got made how the analyses were done the details the being able to see the raw data for yourself um, and these are things that are important to scientists for being able to verify one another's conclusions which is an important thing that distinguishes science from other forms of knowledge. Like, you know, in a lot of other domains of life, someone says something and you're supposed to believe it because they're an expert or they're authority or they're, they're, they're a leader or whatever. And the way scientists get credibility and get traction in it, with each other as well as in the public sphere is they say, look, you don't have to believe me because I've got this lab coat and fancy degree. Um, I'm going to tell you how I reach the conclusions and then you can see for yourself. And so open science, a lot of it is about trying to live up to that promise of saying, we want science to work in this way, that it's verifiable, that every as much as is practical gets out there and is visible to other people. Um, so for me, that's that's one of the most important things. And then tied up with that is issues about replicability. And we want our conclusions to, you know, if you do an, if someone does an experiment and they say, I got this result, we want to know that that wasn't a fluke, that it's a sort of consistent thing. Um, and openness helps us uh, with that process. Um, and, you know, and there are other people have other more technical things that are part of this larger discussion that have to do with how we do statistical inferences and that sort of thing. But those are 
probably some of the bigger themes that tie it together. One of the things I certainly like about your podcast is that it's a way, reading materials about it are great, but it's nice to hear people who are kind of on the same page about the open science process generally wrestle with some of the complex issues about it and hear how you've approached it and how you all are thinking about it. So just wanted to say how much we appreciate your that you all do that podcast regularly. Oh, thank you. It's nice. The podcast format, I, I, I wonder if you guys feel the same way. One of the nice things about it is it's because you're talking. I think there's a different expectation about how sort of well thought out and structured it's supposed to be. So like when I started blogging, blogging, science, scientists blogging was a new thing. And I felt like I could take a risk in saying something stupid and it's just a it's just a silly blog and who cares and as science blogging has gotten to be a bigger deal now i i feel a higher bar for when i put something on my blog like i have to make sure my arguments are pretty safe and and thought through and whatever and so now podcasting sort of like so we can kind of like have these casual conversations on our podcast um and like you said we're all the three of us me and alexa and samin we have enough in common that we're not like fighting over basic, like sort of, you know, starting principles. Um, but we can sort of hash through ideas and, and not feel obliged to like have the most airtight argument or to be certain about what we believe about. Yeah, that's definitely been our experience. We started off as a blog and then mm -hmm. we tried to do both and then we just quickly shifted into podcasting because yeah. it does take some preparation, but you're right, it doesn't, you feel like if you can hear people talking and hear their tone of voice and their thought process that people might be a little more lenient when they're listening versus I agree that if someone is going to have a blog post, they can screenshot it and are your references correct and that kind of thing. So it feels like a podcast is a little more, I don't know, laid back in a way. And and anyway, I think it shows in the, the frequency of what we do now, which is I don't know the last time we wrote a blog post. Uh, it's been a while. <laughs> yeah. But um, thank you so much for your time today. As, as we conclude, do you have any take-home messages you'd like to share with our listeners and us? Yeah, I, I think the, I mean, I think you guys know this, but you know, for, for listeners, especially because, you, you know, you mentioned that you have a lot of listeners who aren't other academics, the, you know, the, the issues around open science and in particular around replication and the so-called replication crisis in psychology, I think uh, something that I've been trying to remember to emphasize when I talk to students or just talk to friends who aren't academia is that all of it's you could take one perspective on psychology and, and the sort of replication issues and you could you could view it as a reason to trust psychology less. You could be like, oh my God, they have all these replication problems and and they're all all these findings are getting overturned and blah blah blah. And I think what I what I try to encourage people to to see it as is that science is supposed to be self-critical and reflective, self-correcting, and that it would it's actually a very healthy sign that psychology is going through this process right now and that they shouldn't assume that the absence of it would be better. I mean, it might be, maybe there might be, you know, some periods of psychology or some other fields where everything is quiet because everything's great. Um, but that the fact that you're seeing all this sort of uh, um, churn and, and examination is actually a sign of a really healthy field. And, and so hopefully I think a lot of people do understand that, but that is, I think it's, if you start to get cynical, oh, everything I learned in class is crap or whatever, um, you know, it's just sort of healthy to to view that as like, no, the, this is the, like the immune system's working or the, the self-correction system is working. That's fantastic. And I guess one last question that we'd like to ask our guests kind of going back to the sci-fi geek theme maybe and it, but it doesn't have to be anything that's sci-fi related what are the things that you like to geek out about yeah so as it happens i i really enjoy science fiction um i have for a long time i was a, a big um in my 20s uh that was kind of when a lot of the cyberpunk literature was coming out so I, I was like huge into like william gibson and neil stevenson and that sort of thing um I, recently i just finished this series by martha wells called the Murderbot diary 
series, which is um, it's a four series of four novellas um, about the, and it's narrated by a, um, a a a robot, a security robot that uh, hacks itself to be free, um, and it's dry and it's funny and it's like an exciting plot, and so I really enjoyed that. Um, uh, yeah, I. I'm in the middle of rereading the Harry Potter series with my son right now. And, and it's, it's so great to have an excuse to reread Harry Potter. Um, and, and it's really fun to sort of see that through his eyes. We, I'm reading the entire thing out loud to him. He's old enough that he could be reading it himself, but we kind of got started when he was younger. And, you know, my, I, I will very shortly have read all seven Harry Potter books out loud from cover to cover, which, uh, untold hours of my life but that's been a lot of fun yeah that's really really cool well um maybe just to kind of wrap up we will link in the description to your blog and your podcast and your lab website but i'm just wondering where else can people find you yeah um that's i mean that's a lot of it uh and and if people go to the podcast we we do do letters on the podcast and if anyone's interested in sending us a letter for either just to talk about what we've talked about or, or if they want us to read a letter on the podcast that's on our podcast website um i'm also on twitter at h-a-r-d-s-c-i short for the hardest science um and uh uh yeah that's probably those are probably the main ways to find me fantastic i highly recommend following sanjay on twitter yes. because sanjay is very thoughtful and and tweets about a lot of intelligent things about science but in addition to that there, um, Sunday's also very funny and very kind and does a great job yes. of supporting graduate students and early career researchers. So it's nice to see that. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So, Sanjay, I have to engage in a little bit of, um, self-disclosure, um, when, and it's a huge nerd out moment <laughs> when you followed me back on Twitter, I was so excited about that because I was so interested in you and your work that I screenshotted it. So on my phone, I have a little thing, of a notification that said that you re you followed me on Twitter. So that's that's my uh, my self disclosure for the episode today. Oh, that's very kind. Yeah. I, uh, Twitter is uh, um, Twitter has been so it's been really important in the open science movement, but it's also just been. I've gotten to meet a lot of people through Twitter, um, and and I love that opportunity to like, yeah, to meet people virtually, and and sometimes I get to meet them in in person too. So um, that's uh, I've I'm really glad it's connected us. For example, that's uh, um, yeah, that's something that would not have happened until fairly recently, and that's I think one of the really cool things about what's happening in academia today. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, maybe we'll wrap up there. Thank you so much again, Sanjay, for your time today. This is really interesting to hear about all of your interesting work and podcast and blog. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm stoked that I finally got to be on the Jedi Council. <laughs> uh, thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Jedi Council Podcast, a member of the Geek Therapy Podcast Network. You can find more information about our podcast or blog at www.jedi-council.com. If you would like to support the Jedi Council Podcast, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash Jedi Council. The views expressed on this podcast are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Additionally, this podcast is for entertainment and informational purposes only and should not be used in place of advice from a mental health or medical professional. If you're struggling with mental health issues, please seek professional help.